Morning, everyone. So, you might wonder what in the world Numbers 27 has to do with Mark chapter 6. Well, hopefully that'll become clear um, soon enough, but we are actually going to continue our study through the book of Mark. So if you're not there yet, you can turn to Mark chapter 6. Last week we looked at verses 1 to 30, and verse 30 is kind of a hinge, so we're going to start at verse 30 and make it through the end of chapter 6 this morning. So we will kind of read it as we go through studying it. Um, So we'll read it, you know, piece by piece, beginning in a a few minutes here. Um, But if you want to be turning there, if you're using the Pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew um, in front of you or underneath you, and you can turn to page 841. That's where our text is found for this morning. All right. So you may not know this about me, but I'm a, I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. <laughs> so some people are laughing because they do know that I am a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. I grew up in Pittsburgh. Steelers Nation, baby. Anybody? All right, all right, all right. There we go. We're everywhere. Um, so, w- <laughs> yeah. Yep, God's grace can, you know, bring us together even despite our team differences. One of the things, so there is actually a point to this. Let me get there. All right, so one of the things I love about the Pittsburgh Steelers is how consistently good their head coaching has been. Okay, so Steelers have had only three head coaches since 1969. And all three of those coaches are in the top 25 winningest coaches in NFL history. Number eight, Chuck Knoll, who won four Super Bowls. Mike Tomlin, number 18, and he's won one Super Bowl. And Bill Carr, if you're from Pittsburgh, that's how you say his name. Um, It's Cower. He's number 23. So Mike Tomlin, number 18 all time, is still their head coach after 15 seasons. He became the Steelers head coach in 2007. He's led the team to 10 playoff runs, seven division titles, three FC championships, two Super Bowls, and a partridge. No, I'm kidding. and one Super Bowl victory. So, Mike Tomlin's never had a, a losing season. Do you, if you're not a sports person, that means always 500 and above. You know, like if there's 16 games, it's eight and eight or better. Never a losing season. Um, he's actually a Christian too, by the way. Tony Dungy was his mentor in coaching and in life. Dungy gave him his first NFL opportunity um, as an assistant coach. His Wikipedia entry even tells you where he goes to church in Pittsburgh. My man. I've been to that church. I know where he goes to church. Anyway, so I recently heard, here's where this all came from. I recently heard a few clips from an interview that he did with some podcasters, and it was both encouraging, no surprise, surprisingly it was convicting to me. So let me quote him. Tomlin, and again, this is audio, so, you know, the the uh, grammar's not perfect or whatever. He said, I love coaches that resist the responsibility to coaches that talk negatively about a dude, that can't learn, and dot, dot, dot. Man, if everybody could learn, we'd need less coaches. Oftentimes, coaches focuses on the negative. This guy can't do this. This guy can't do it. Well, what about your responsibility as the coach? Okay, so Tomlin says, I don't run away from coaching. I run to coaching. It's all in line with not seeking comfort because when you're a coach that's talking about somebody who can't learn, you're seeking comfort because your teaching is struggling. Ouch. So, okay, more could be said. People have limits. Okay, enough. He actually goes on to say some insightful things about that later. Um, in case you're inclined to just nitpick Mike Tomlin. Um, Anyway, also found this article from 2009. Um, This was right before the Super Bowl that they won after his, you know, second year as the uh, Steelers coach. And it was before a bunch of of reporters, and um, he mentioned his appreciation for Tony Dungy. And he said, first and foremost, I want people to know who I am and what the most important thing is in my life, my relationship with Jesus Christ. Football is what we do. Faith is who we are all the time. I want to lead with a servant's heart. And then he said, the biggest thing I learned from Tony Dungy was an unyielding faith. 
It was displayed all the time with him. He was extremely consistent, and that's what I want to do. The article goes on to say, then, these statements came as no surprise to Steelers' assistant coaches and players who've heard the same spiritual passion in private. Um, One defensive end, Nick Eason, said, it's a great blessing when a man of God is leading your team. It's like a godly father in the household. And then Amos Jones, who was special teams coach at the time, said, I think his faith in the Lord is a blessing. It's peace of mind knowing that he has everybody's best interest at heart. So that's good leadership, right? He has everybody's best interest at heart. And it means that he'll run to coaching, to the needs, not away from them. And it means he will correct and teach and lead whether or not it's comfortable, and especially when it's uncomfortable, right? So any good leadership, let me just say this. Okay, end of illustration. We're heading into Mark 6, in case you were wondering where I was going. Um, Any good leadership in a human is just a tiny little candle to the blazing sun of the perfect, glorious, good, righteous leadership of the Lord Jesus, And we see that glory. We need to see that glory in Mark 6. The question of Mark 6, we're going to see the glory of Jesus. The question will be, how will we respond? Okay, so let's open our eyes. Lord, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Open our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus so that we can be transformed by his glory and molded and shaped into his image. All right, so here we go. Point number one, the miracle meal, starting in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus. Remember, he had sent them out. So this is kind of picking up from verse 13. But um, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, okay, you guys have been busy. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while worth pausing right here. This is the Lord of the Sabbath endorsing rest as a good thing for his disciples. We are human. We have limits. This is the heart of God. Like this is really an encouraging little glimpse of the heart of Jesus. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. That's how busy it was for them at that time. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. But In verse 33, it says, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So Jesus doesn't run the other way. Turn the boat around. (laughs) The crowd, you know, like, let's get away. He had compassion on them. He was moved toward their need. This is the heart. This is the love of God in response to interruptions and need. And we should probably notice, if you're following Jesus, know that he will oftentimes push us beyond our limits for the sake of others. I mean, if you were in the boat after what you'd been doing, Don't you think some of the disciples probably sighed and maybe even said, but you said we were going to have a chance to rest a while. So discipleship, you know, meeting these needs and interruptions, quote unquote, um, with compassion. So Jesus has compassion on them for a reason. Did you see it there in the passage? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, we might assume we know what that means. You know, they were poor wandering sheep. They needed Jesus to be their shepherd. You know, we have that picture. Maybe you, maybe you had it like in your Bible when you were a kid, you know, Jesus with a sheep around his shoulders. Um, maybe that's what you think of. I mean, obviously, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He's like the shepherd that'll leave the 99 to go, you know, bring back the stray sheep, the wandering sheep. But it's actually more specific than that here. So we have seen the poor leadership. Shepherding is a metaphor for leadership in the Bible. We've seen the poor leadership of the scribes and Pharisees leading the people astray, putting heavy burdens on the people. We've seen the debauched leadership of Herod 
the so-called king or tetrarch of the area. We've lost the leadership, or they've lost the leadership of John the Baptist. He got his head cut off for telling the truth. But did you hear the parallel? Why in the world are we reading from Numbers 27? Did you hear the parallel there? In verse 15, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. Moses was going to die. So the people of Israel needed a leader to lead them into the promised land. Who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in. It's a shepherding metaphor, right? Into the fold, out from the fold to pasture. That the congregation of the Lord may not be as a sheep that has no shepherd. And so Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, lay your hand on him and he'll be the new leader. So shepherding, leadership metaphor, like Moses, then Joshua. Joshua was to lead the people of Israel into Canaan. And you know what the Greek equivalent of Joshua is? So Joshua in Hebrew is Yeshua. Oh, Jesus in Greek. This is the new and better Joshua leading the people. One more text. So let me just say this here. We're going to look at a few, several, maybe a little more than usual, some Old Testament texts. This is really key because imagine, I don't know, what your favorite like TV show might be that has five seasons and, and it all builds on itself, okay? I don't even know what might be a good example, so just pick yours, okay? If I dove into season four and just watched like episode four, I'd be totally lost. And you'd be like, oh, you know, like first season there was this. And what you're doing is you're referencing Numbers 27 for me. Okay, so the Bible is a story. So when we're doing this, it's not just like pointless history lesson. This is we need to understand all the rich background so that we understand the richness of all that's happening. Because this is climactic stuff that's happening when Jesus is on earth. Okay, so. Another text that we need to have in the background when we're looking at Jesus here in Mark 6 is Ezekiel 34. So the first six verses I think we have on the screen here, um, some of the following verses I'll read quickly, but it's kind of the punchline. So um, here we go. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel the prophet, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Things were bad at this time. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones. The weak you've not strengthened. The, strict, the sick you've not healed. The injured you've not bound up. The strayed you've not brought back. The lost you've not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. That's obviously bad leadership. The kind of shepherding of the people of God should be the opposite of that. Shepherds should feed the sheep, not feed themselves on the sheep, not use the sheep for their own selfish ends. Strengthen the weak, heal the sick, bind up the injured, bring back the strays, seek the lost. Don't rule with force and harshness, but with gentleness and love. So the sheep were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none, none to search or seek for them. Man, that's a bad situation. So what's Yahweh, what's God going to do about that? Well, Ezekiel 6.10 goes on to say this. Thus says the Lord God. This is not up here, but you could just listen. Behold, I am against those bad shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand. I'm gonna put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick dark darkness and I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. 
I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So what's God going to do to this bad situation? He's going to show up and do it. That's background for what Jesus is doing and saying. What is God going to do? He sends his son. He comes himself. And oddly enough, he teaches. That's what the sheep need. They need to be fed the truth. So Mark 6, he comes and he teaches them. He began to teach them many things. Verse 34. And when it grew late, verse 35, continue on here, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy, buy themselves something to eat. Pretty reasonable, right? Makes sense. But Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. That sounds entirely unreasonable, doesn't it? And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them? A denarii is like a blue-collar worker day's wage. So like two-thirds of a year's wages would maybe buy enough for everybody to have a little bit. Is that what we're supposed to do? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. I mean, they probably threw that out, 200 denarii. That was probably make it a little sarcastic. <laughs> what do you want us to do? Well, how many loaves do you have? <laughs> and Jesus is not joking. G go see. And when they found out, they said five. This account is in all four Gospels. Some different accounts focus on different details. But five loaves, two fish, not much. These are small loaves. The disciples complain about that what they don't have. Jesus asks them what they do have. Their resources are obviously paltry. They know this is impossible. Jesus wants them to feed the people, but they can't. But they will. They don't have the resources, but Jesus does. So bring what you have, and I am the resource provider and multiplier. He says, offer what you have and I will multiply it and make it enough, even more than enough. And so by the grace and help of Jesus, the disciples can and will provide for the people. Doesn't that sound like a Christian pattern? Like think about Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 with all the suffering and need that he experienced and oftentimes, you know, thorn in the flesh, like take it away, take, no, take it away, no. How am I going to do what I'm supposed to do if I've got this thorn in my flesh? Wouldn't I be more effective if you took it away? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in your weakness. When you are weak, then my strength comes in and then you're strong. Jesus elsewhere says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, the issue is not the strength of our faith, but the strength of the one in whom we trust. Kind of makes me think of this prayer that David Brainerd, um, I won't take time to explain who he was. He said, Lord, use me in a way that is totally disproportionate to who I am. I pray that prayer. I pray that for me because I'm not much. Pray that for us, because, hey, we're not much, but we serve a God who's really great, who can multiply our paltry resources and use us in a way totally out of proportion with who we are. You might want to start praying that with me. Let's pray that. Let's see what God would do through us. Do that in my life. Do that in my household. Do that in our church. Okay, verse 39. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Hmm. Where else do we read about green grass? 
in the Bible. Remember, this is season six or seven. Um, this happened back in like season two or three. Anybody, anybody? Green grass. Psalm 23. Oh, what's Psalm 23 about? The Lord is my shepherd. Hey. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. The provision of God as my shepherd. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. Gave them to the disciples to set before the people. He wanted the disciples to feed the people. And he divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied. Not just they all ate and like, oh, that was a good appetizer. That'll at least get me, you know, over the hump to get home. They're all satisfied. And so what a contrast to last week, that debauched banquet that Herod threw. This is a different meal, different host, big contrast. Jesus is the host of this meal. And it's populated not by, you know, the powerful, the movers and the shakers, all kinds of people. He is not providing this banquet in the wilderness to boost his approval ratings. He's doing it in order to meet the needs of others. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It's not self-serving in any way. This banquet on the green is also a foreshadowing. We're in the story. Maybe we're in, you know, season six. There's another season to come. The Last Supper is coming. This anticipates that. You know why we know that? Think about the similarity of the language. The prayer and the distribution language in verse 41. And then compare that with Mark 14, 22, the Last Supper with the disciples. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. All those phrases are the same. And said, take, this is my body. So Jesus is like this Jewish father presiding over this meal in the wilderness like it's a family meal. I mean, perhaps you've actually heard the common Jewish prayer. Um, it's still repeated in Jewish homes today. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. That's probably what he said. And this is strikingly inclusive. All of them were fed and satisfied. Could all of these people have been clean? Torah tradition was detailed and strict regarding kosher at table, clean food prepared in a clean way, eaten by clean people. That's the way it's supposed to be. But this is like all kinds of people eating out in the wilderness, you know. This is a little foreshadowing of the new covenant dynamics that Jesus is going to institute, that he's going to, this, this new covenant that he's going to create participation in the new people of God and participation at the Lord's table is not going to be a matter of keeping kosher, keeping all the rules. It's a new Passover for all peoples, every tongue and tribe and people and nation who are made clean, not by kosher laws, but by the blood of the lamb, washing them clean from their sin that Chris was talking about. Nobody but sinners in this world. So if we're going to be made right with God, if we're going to be reconciled to God so that we can have a seat at his table, we need atonement. We need our sins covered. We need our sins washed away. So Jesus is coming so that all peoples can come and be a part of the family of God if they turn from their sins and trust in Jesus as Savior so this meal is a little anticipation of the Lord's table. The Lamb of God who shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins and he feeds us with his grace. He's the host of the meal. Verse 43. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Okay, so just real quick here, you know, I went to public school, so everybody else, this should be cookies on the bottom shelf. How many disciples were there? Hey, okay, 12. 
How many baskets were there? It's like a physical testimony for each one of them of what Jesus had just done. Okay? Immediately, oddly enough, he made his disciples get into the boat and go. It's pretty strong language there. He made them. So almost like they must have been reluctant. He made them get into the boat and go to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. What is going on here? It's actually probably something quite different than the idyllic, you know, if you've read a children's Bible, sometimes, you know, like Noah's Ark is like, you know, these happy little animals, you know, getting on the ark and woohoo. This was judgment. The story of Noah and the flood is a terrifying thing. I mean, obviously, if you're in the boat, you're safe, but outside the boat, usually that part is left out of the story or just minimized. So here, maybe, maybe you've seen pictures, you know, idyllic picnic in the field. Why is there this urgent push to get the disciples out of there? Well, the Gospel of John, his account in chapter 6, makes explicit what is implicit here. So Mark, or I'm sorry, John 6, 14 and 15, when the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, feeding the 5,000, they said, this is indeed the prophet who's come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. We've talked about this in previous weeks. There was this expectation that the Messiah would be a military political leader who would free them from Roman oppression and set up the kingdom. And Jesus is avoiding all of that association. That's not what he came to do. He came to free them from an oppression deeper than Roman oppression, the oppression of our sin, slavery to sin. So the air at the time was actually charged with revolution and the fervor was escalating. So Jesus gets his disciples out of there and dismisses the crowd to avoid this groundswell of false messianic or misguided messianic fervor. So that fervor is not going to help the crowd because that's not why he came. But it could also influence the disciples to get caught up into it and carried away by it. Remember Peter in the garden tries to cut off the servant's ear? Well, he tries to cut off his head, but the guy goes like this and he cuts off his ear. It's because Peter was a zealot or he had zealot-like tendencies. And Jesus is like, no, and he heals that ear and then he goes off to the cross. So they were susceptible to this kind of thing. So he sends them off and then he dismisses the crown. Okay, so John's gospel states it explicitly. Here we only get some hints, but if you're paying attention, the hints are there. Actually, just for the sake of time, I won't. If, if you're interested in what those hints are, I'll tell you later. Okay. Um, I'll just use a quote from a guy named John, not John, James Edwards. Um, so he writes this, Jesus will not march to a populist and militarist drumbeat. He will not be a militant messianic shepherd of the sheep. His model as host of the wilderness banquet is not that of a zealot chieftain, but that of Moses. The repeated references to the wilderness recall Israel's sojourn in the wilderness following the exodus from Egypt. The multiplication of loaves recalls the gift of manna. Miraculous provision again, right? And Jesus' leading the people as a shepherd recalls Moses' leading a fledgling, fledgling nation. Following the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus reaffirms by prayer his calling to express his divine sonship as a servant rather than as a freedom fighter against Rome. Because he goes off and prays, and actually, this is one of the hints, sorry, I guess I'm going to mention one of them, is there's three times that Mark mentions that Jesus goes away and prays. And each time is when there's a misunderstanding about his mission. Okay? And obviously that's the case here. So what do we see here in this first section of Mark 6. We see the glory of Jesus. He is the greater than Moses, one who leads his people out of slavery through the wilderness. And miraculous provision is given in the wilderness. He's the greater than Joshua, leader of the people of God into the promised land. He is the shepherd leader. He's the one prophesied in Exodus 34. He is Yahweh in the flesh, 
Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. The question is, how will we respond? Will we follow him? When he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death or other threats, when he leads us out of our comfort zone, when he doesn't answer our prayers like we'd like him to or in the timing that we'd prefer, or when he leads us toward need or to like our own need, leads us right into that, or leads us to meet more needs than we feel like we have the resources to meet. Will we trust him? Will we follow him? Will we remember who he is? We've seen his glory. We can trust him. He can do totally out of proportion with who we are because of who he is. So he miraculously provides for the people in the wilderness, just like the Exodus. Jesus is actually leading a new Exodus, a better Exodus. He's revealing his identity and his glory in the process, just like Yahweh did with Moses, Chris mentioned this, in Exodus 33 and 34, right? So God calls Moses to lead the people out, and, Mo- and, and Moses is like, you got to go with us. Okay, well, I want to see your glory. We'll come to that in just a minute. All right, so these two incidents are tightly woven together. If you notice, right after this thing happens, the 12 baskets, the everybody who ate the loaves, 5,000 men, and then immediately, boom, it's into the second situation here, the second story on the lake, okay? So these two are supposed to be held together. So let's look at the second point here, the theophany. Verse 45, immediately... He made his disciples get into the boat, go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he'd taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, which would be somewhere in the 3 to 6 a.m. time, the way that they viewed time, at least in the Roman world at the time, was first watch, six to nine. Second watch, nine to 12. Third watch, 12 to three. Fourth watch, three to six. Okay? There you go. About the fourth watch in the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. What? So first thing, just make sure you keep in mind the question that should be ringing in our ears if we're reading through Mark without stopping. We would remember the last time they were on the lake and the winds were kicked up. Remember Jesus calmed the storm and they said who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him so this is still answering that question who is this the identity of Jesus we've seen it over and over again is central in the gospel of Mark but the big question we've got to ask is what in the world is up with verse 48 what does Mark mean he meant to pass by them anybody else notice that anybody bothered by that like When we mean to pass by someone, you know, like you don't want to talk to that person in the grocery store or whatever, you see them down one aisle and you're like, go around the other aisle. We don't want to be seen. We don't want to have to stop. So what's going on here? It seems contradictory. He came to them. He saw they were in trouble. He came to them, but he meant to pass by them like and avoid them. Why didn't he just give them a wider berth if he intended not to be seen, you know, intended to pass by, simply pass by. So there's some strangeness here, right? But that's a tip-off that there might be more here than meets the eye. And let me just say, whenever that happens when you're reading the Bible, (laughs) if you find something that seems contradictory or offensive or off-putting or makes no sense, press into it. Because that's oftentimes when you find diamonds, when you do some mining. So here we go. You ready to mine with me? In the Jewish mind, 
Okay, we've got to jump into the world of the Bible, steeped in the Torah, Old Testament. There's only one person that walks on the water. Anybody want to guess? God. Okay, there you go. Psalm 77, 19. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Okay, there are other passages, but we'll leave it at that. In addition, he meant to pass by is not just a kind of pedestrian way to say that Jesus wanted to get past them to the other side of the sea. That's actually language, like literal specific language that's used in the Old Testament to refer to a theophany. What is a theophany? It's an appearance of God. It's when he shows up, when he reveals himself to people. So look at Job 9, 8. It is God who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. That's pretty explicit. You know, God, God alone walks on the, on the sea. Verse 10, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Job was so struggling with, God, what are you up to? Like, I want to know what you're doing here. And yet you seem distant. You seem like invisible to me. Your ways are beyond me. I don't understand. So that's one passage. Even more significantly, Mark 6.48 is referring to Exodus 33 and 34. Okay, again, we're doing, we got to do some mining here, so stay with me. Exodus 33. Beginning in verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you've spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. You got to go with us, okay? So Moses said, please show me your glory. I want to know you. I want to know who you are. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Same verb as he intended to pass by. I will make all my goodness pass before you and, and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. See, he's revealing who he is. This is his nature. This is his heart. This is his character. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord, Yahweh said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and my glory, while my glory passes by, same verb, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And then down in Exodus 34, 5, Yahweh the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Capital letters is Yahweh. Can't really see because they're all capital letters there. Anyway, Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, passed before him, same verb, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So Jesus wasn't trying to get past them unnoticed. It's actually the opposite. He was intending to reveal his glory. He meant to pass by just like Yahweh had passed by Moses. Why did, Moses, why did Yahweh pass by Moses? To reveal his glory, to show his glory. Why is Jesus passing by, intending to pass by his disciples on the, on the water? To show his glory, to show them who he is. And that illusion is all the clearer, reinforced in a sense, by the fact that Jesus says what he says in verse 50. Look at it there. They think he's a water spirit, some ghost, and they cry out. They're terrified. But immediately he speaks to them and says, take heart, ego me," in Greek. I am. Do not be afraid. Ego me" is an allusion to Exodus 3. Burning bush. Moses walks by like, whoa, that's not typical. Let me see what's going on over here. This bush is burning and it's not burning up. And 
God speaks to him and says, take your sandals off. You're on holy ground. You're in the presence of God. And he says, I'm going to send you to bring my people out of Egypt to deliver them. Okay, okay, who do I tell them sent me? I am has sent you. I am has sent me to you is what you should say. I am who I am. God is revealing his glory and who he is he. He is the self-existent one. He is I am who I am. This is my name forever, he says in Exodus 3, 13 and following. Okay, this is why in, for instance, the Gospel of John, when Jesus was having some argument with the Pharisees, at one point in John 8, 57, they say, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hit, they wanted to stone him because of blasphemy. He just claimed to be the great I am and he's a man. To take the name of Yahweh on your lips and call yourself the great I am was blasphemy of the highest order unless... It's true. So Jesus intended to pass by the disciples in order to show his glory to his disciples, reveal his glory to his disciples. And when they see him, they freak out. He says, take heart. I am is here. Don't be afraid. He wanted to reassure his disciples that God was with them. So in the darkness, in the distress, when your eyes can deceive you, the words of God and his presence with us can encourage and calm us. Take heart. Don't be afraid. Is that something that any of us need to hear this morning? Isn't that the pattern over and over again in scripture? Isaiah 43, I'll just give you a couple. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not because of who I am. Well, because of who he is. He's speaking here. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Or already mentioned it psalm 23 even though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death i will fear no evil for you yahweh my shepherd are with me your rod and your staff they comfort me this is our good shepherd he's with us we don't have to fear take heart brothers and sisters whatever the distress and then jesus gets in the boat and the wind ceases and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened like what <laughs> isn't that kind of like like anticlimactic like what's going on here had they understood about the loaves of the fishes they would have understood him walking to them they didn't have eyes to see so this actually again it's a part of the storyline it anticipates what's, what we're going to see in chapter 8. We've already seen that the disciples didn't understand, right, repeatedly. Chapter 8 is the feeding of the 4,000, and again, they don't understand. And Jesus says again, here's my mission. I'm going to die. And if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And Peter's like rebuking him. Do you see the misunderstanding? So this is anticipating that. So their hearts were hardened because they had different expectations for what Messiah was going to do. And they wanted Messiah to fit into their mold rather than them trusting and submitting to him. So James Edwards writes this. Mark again reminds us that faith is not an inevitable result of knowing about Jesus or even of being with Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, it's more often than not a decision that must be made in the face of struggle and trepidation. Discipleship is more endangered by lack of faith and hardness of heart than by external dangers. 
These two facets of trial and revelation combine to form a unified purpose just as it did in the Exodus where God disclosed himself as I am in the midst of Israel's oppression in Egypt. Jesus likewise declares himself I am in the storm on the lake. Mark will reassert this point supremely in chapter 15 where in the catastrophe of the the cross, the centurion recognizes Jesus as God's son. In storms, adversities, and defeat, human self-sufficiency is revealed for what it is, human insufficiency. When the defenses of human pride are breached, people sometimes see God's presence among them, even even if it at first appears in troubling and perhaps terrifying ways. So Jesus is here as Emmanuel, God with us, Yahweh with us. Yahweh is the wave walker, and he's here. He's the manna maker, and he's here. The good shepherd is here for his sheep. Take heart, do not be afraid. But just as the Israelites saw God's glory in the Exodus and in the wilderness, but then their hearts were hardened, so the disciples are in danger of the same failure of faith. I mean, thankfully, this isn't the end of the story, right? they will see at the resurrection. But final point, who is this and where is he going? The ending can seem a little anticlimactic here, verses 53 to 56. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. So why is this kind of the conclusion to this section? I mean, is the crowd portrayed in a more positive light than the disciples even? At least they're running to Jesus, right? Because they know he can save them. Well, I think in a sense, this section ends with a question. Will the disciples and will these people, the crowd, see his mission, his ultimate saving purpose, or will they simply want him to save them from their sickness and from political oppression? Do they want a wonder worker or do they realize they need a savior? Kind of ends with a question. So, let me just come back around to Mike Tomlin and land the plane. So good coaching is a blessing, right? It can also have a tough side to it. The same good coaching, sunlight, if we were to use this image, that softens and shapes a player can also harden the player, depending on the response. So Tomlin's let a lot of good players go over the years, over the years, you know, prima donnas, drama queens. Some of them have been very talented players. He's taken heat for it at times. But he's been effective because he's run to the coaching, not away from it, in search of the comfort zone. And Jesus is not just a coach, he's the Lord, (laughs) okay? But he's the Lord, which means we're not which means we need to respond to him and trust him. And he's going to lead us in paths of righteousness and sometimes he's gonna lead us through the valley of the shadow of death and we've gotta trust him. He is our shepherd. We shall not want even when it seems like he's leading us right into lack and suffering. He's showing us his glory. You can trust me, you can trust me. In fact, you know what the New Testament equivalent is? of Exodus 34, Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You know what the New Testament, the Greek equivalent of that phrase is? It's found in John 1, 14 and to 18. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the New Testament equivalent. For from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So we all like sheep have gone astray. We all like sheep need a shepherd, a good leader. We must. He feeds us. He leads us. He restores our souls. But also we've got to trust him and submit to him wherever he leads. We looked at the cost of following Jesus last week, right? We are not the Lord. He is. So there's a warning here but there's so much grace 
right? What is our shepherd like? We see it here. I love John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Like, what better leader are you gonna find than Jesus? What else do you need, do you want that Jesus can't provide for you? And look at ultimately where he is leading us. Remember, Moses led the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, oppression, through the wilderness. That was hard. It was a test of faith to the promised land. Joshua led them in. Jesus rescues us from sin. This world is like a wilderness, but we are going to the promised land, to Zion. And listen to Revelation 7.15, our shepherd. Therefore, those who washed in the blood of the lamb are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So we're gonna close and respond to Mark 6 by singing two songs that are fitting responses to the revelations of Jesus' glory in Mark 6. He's the wave walker. The worship team can come on up. The wave walker the, who captains us through the storms of life so that we can say no matter what we go through, it is well with my soul. He's also the miracle provider who alone can satisfy our souls. He's the bread of life who will one day give us a seat at the wedding feast of the Lamb. We will feast in the house of Zion. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Lord, thank you for showing us your glory here. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and soft, faith-filled, responsive hearts to trust you and follow you wherever you lead. In Jesus' name, amen.